Please pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. Good morning. It is a joy and privilege to worship with you when I am here home on leave. Um, Father Scott has mentioned the last couple weeks, but my name is Jessica Hughes. I am a missionary from this church and I serve in Uganda. By God's grace and your generosity, I've been able to serve in Uganda for 10 years now. I can't believe it's been that long. And I'm so grateful for your love and your support as you send me out to serve. Uh, Uganda Christian University began in 1997, so this is our Silver Jubilee. There have been many celebrations throughout the year, which largely looks like public lectures, <laughs> but um, Friday is a big graduation with a big public lecture and dancing and singing and lots of eating and lots of cake. It's a, quite a big deal. Though the university is 25, it grew out of the Bishop Tucker Theological College, which began in 1913. And the building where my office is in was built in 1921. So the Bishop Tucker building itself is 100 years old. So there's quite a, a history of uh, teaching and proclaiming the gospel in Mokono. A UCU is what we call a church-founded school, so it was started by the Church of Uganda. It is very Anglican. You can't throw a stone without hitting a priest somewhere on campus, <laughs> including me. And where we were the first private university to be chartered in Uganda, to be accredited. And we're very proud of that. Anyone can open a school in Uganda and teach. Whether you are accredited to do so is a different matter entirely but we were the first private school to get there, which is a tremendous joy and point of pride for us. We now have five campuses across Uganda with about 11,000 students. We have 11 faculties, many bachelor and master's programs, three PhD programs, and I think there are two more in development. So UCU is quite a player in the tertiary education in Uganda. I teach in the Bishop Tucker School of Divinity and Theology. It's quite a mouthful, but we are the only school among other schools. Yes. I teach in biblicals, largely in Old Testament, and I'm also the e-learning manager, managing our distance learning program. You can take the consulting, take the girl out of the consulting firm, but you can't take the consulting firm out of the girl, apparently. So, of course, I bring you greetings from absolutely everyone in Uganda. Um, in and that's just what happens when I'm going home. Oh, give us, give them your, our greetings. Them being, you know, everyone. And um, in particular, I had some students uh, who came over for tea before I left. And Solomon, very tall young man, Solomon said, be sure to give the Christians my greetings. So, okay. So, do you receive the greetings from Uganda? Ah, thank you. May I give your greetings back to them? Yes. Good. I was going to anyway, but now we are agreed, and it's okay. We are, we are together. Now, today we are going to look at both the gospel and the epistle lesson, and I think they're rather appropriate for us today as we are giving our pledges, what we are going to be giving to the Lord in the next year, and as we look for a moment at Paul the missionary. 
and it's actually a tale of two Pharisees, I think, the comparison between the gospel and the epistle. And so you can take out your Bibles with your, either the paper or the pixels on your phone, and we're going to begin in Luke 18. I think we know the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector in Luke 18. It's a story of pride and judgment and righteousness with very stern warnings for us not to be like the Pharisee. And the reasons why are important. The Pharisees were a group of Jews who were very concerned with following the law. On its face, that would have been fine. That's why God gave the law. To be, for it to be followed because that was the way to get closer to God. But the Pharisees were obsessed with following the law to a fault. They failed to see the forest for the trees in their pursuit of righteousness. The Pharisees forgot that the law was meant to draw men to God, not to exclude them from him if they were not perfect. They forgot about the love and the compassion that is in the law. We can also forget that as we read the law and see it as a list to be followed, which it somewhat is, but there is also a great deal of compassion as God seeks to draw us to him in it. And this is why Jesus called them out. They should have known better. And Jesus called them out several times in scripture and you can't miss it. His words were um, a little harsh because they had so heinously lost the plot. When we look at Matthew 23, verses 13 to 15, Jesus says, but woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. I'm called a lot of things in Uganda. That is not one I want attributed to me. For you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. Hmm. You're supposed to bringing, be bringing people to heaven, not shutting them out. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Those are pretty damning words, aren't they? You're going to make people convert, but then you convert them not into sons of God, but the sons of Satan. That's hardly a ringing endorsement for men who fancy themselves to be the epitome of Judaism. So Jesus' calling out the Pharisee in our reading from Luke 18 was not unexpected to Jesus' listeners. Everyone knew this is how they were. Giving the tithe is good, that's what they were proud of. But the Pharisees were stuck on counting out a tenth of even their spices and forgot that God is concerned with the state of their hearts. That is why the tax collector, the man who was known to be evil because one, he worked for the Roman government, and two, he was crooked, just because he could be. And in Uganda, we have the same, you know, we, and we might have thoughts about the IRS here, but ho, oh, the police in Uganda, huh, Benangi. And even when I was coming to leave here, when you go to Entebbe, you go in and you have to get out of the car and go through a metal detector. The passengers in the car, not the driver, I don't know why, <laughs> but we do. And then, because when you get to the building, you have to go through another metal detector. I don't, I don't understand. So we pull up to the, the spot, it's dark, and the policeman greeted, greeted us, my driver and me in Luganda, but he was looking at me, so I responded in Luganda. And he was a bit surprised, who is this white chick and what is she using my language for? 
And so we had our, our common, you know, introductory things. And then he said something very fast, but I heard sente, money, and kumi, 10. So he wanted me to give him 10,000 shillings, a little less than $3. But I couldn't catch him. And I said, what? Sichichigera, I don't understand. So he repeated it. I want 10,000 shillings. Mm -mm, I'm not paying a bribe. So I said, ah, Bambi Sebo, please, sir. Ndi Musumba, I'm a pastor. Silina Sente, I don't have money. He repeated his request. I repeated, Ndi Musumba, I am a pastor. Silina Sente, I don't have money. He finally said, you go. So I skipped the metal detector. Yes. But that is the expectation. That is the expectation. The police are going to hit you up for money. That's how, the, that's how the Jews view the tax collectors. They're going to take taxes, and then they're also going to build their own homes. They won't buy cars. They didn't have cars. But they're going to do other things with the money. That was the understanding. And yet, the tax collector, the one who everyone knew was going to cheat them, was more righteous before God because of the humility in his heart. I'm so grateful for the food giveaways that we are doing. By the way, I keep track of you people. Thank God for the internet. I don't know how missionaries did it, waiting months between letters. I'm like, why hasn't someone answered my email? <laughs> so I'm so grateful for it. I, I read the newsletters. I watch what you're doing. I love that when I went to sign up to help with the distribution this month, I had to keep scrolling to find a place to sign up. All the spots were filled. This is a great problem, isn't it? This is a great problem. Thanks be to God. I hope we don't develop an attitude like the Pharisees, though. I'm glad that I'm not like that person. It's very easy for us to do, isn't it? It's very easy for us to do. Humble brag about that all that we can do to help others. We all know people like that. I remember several years ago having dinner with uh, several missionaries, and of course we're all talking, what do you do? How long have you been here? You know, the normal icebreaker things. And then it devolved into a humble brag contest. Well, I helped to build the laboratory on campus. I did all these. Oh, well, I only gave money for 17 scholarships. Well, I did it. Oh my gosh. And I'm going, how about them Red Sox? <laughs> Let's change the subject entirely. Is that what we're supposed to be doing? Oh me, I've only raised this much money. <sighs> no, we're supposed to raise that much money and give glory to God. Yes? Maintaining that posture of humility. Let's continue to serve with humility and grace. I know you're going to do it, but I want to encourage you to continue all the more. Let's keep it up. When we turn to 2 Timothy, we see our other Pharisee, Paul. Paul, who was a Roman citizen, educated by Gamaliel, a Pharisee, meaning he was in that same class of the people who were very intense about following the law to the letter. He had a lot to be proud of in his life. He wrote about it in Philippians 3, 4 to 6, that if anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, he was following the law before he knew how to follow the law. His parents circumcised him when he should have been. As of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, I am the upper crust. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, persecutor of the church. 
As to righteousness under the law, blameless. Humble brag, huh? I keep the law. Nobody keeps the law like I do. He could have been like the Pharisee in, like, in Luke 18. He observed the law that carefully. But if we keep reading in Philippians 3, beginning in verse 7, Paul explains that is not the case. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. And Paul indeed in suffered the lust of all things, didn't he? At the, when he's writing this letter, he's in a cold and dark prison and he knows that his life is about to end. He spoke of being poured out. He knows that his time is on this earth is over. This is why he has been exhorting Timothy about his ministry because Timothy is the one to whom he will pass on the torch. Timothy has been a constant companion on Paul's missionary journeys and was Paul's spiritual son. Timothy did continue in the evangelistic work that Paul had begun, and he later became the first bishop of Ephesus, so we know that all that Paul had taught and poured into him brought good fruit for the kingdom. But at the moment, Paul is not there. He's in a very bad and dark place. He's alone. He wants to see Timothy. He wants his cloak, the books, and the parchments. I relate to that. Missionaries are always asking for ways to get stuff. Shipping is expensive, man. Who's coming? Who can bring me X? Do you have room in your luggage? What can I buy you when you come? I mean, this is what we do. This is what we live for. And as a missionary, aside from needing people to bring me things, I really have nothing else in common with Paul. I sometimes joke about the mosquito scars on my legs. Mosquitoes like to bite me, I like to scratch. The end result is not pretty. So I say, I bear on my body the marks of Christ. <laughs> Paul bore on his body lashings. It's hardly the same. He suffered quite a lot more for his service. Paul was an itinerant preacher, moved around all the time. Movement was not easy. He did not sit on a, on a plane and watch movies. Was not, <laughs> it was not easy to travel. I have a very nice flat on a beautiful campus where I have internet security and easy access to clean water. Please notice my order of importance on that list. Internet first. I have not been abandoned by those who are supposed to be supporting me. Second Timothy 4.16, Paul notes that in his first that at his first defense, so his first court appearance in this, in this time of being in prison, no one came to support him, but everyone had deserted him. And I'm sure with what can only be described as God's grace, he's forgiven them. When Paul was in prison the first time, he was under house arrest. He could have visitors come and go, bring him food, take care of him. It was a very nice situation. This time, it was very, very different. Emperor Nero was notoriously anti-Christian and persecuted the church very strongly. By the time Paul was writing, it's possible that that anti-Christian rhetoric had died down a bit, 
but it's also very possible that Paul understood that he was a high-value target. Remember that Christianity was a small sect at the time. So to be running around and preaching the gospel was a novel thing and a new thing and was turning the world upside down. And that it's possible that people did not want to endanger their lives by identifying with him, by coming to minister to him in prison. Paul and many other missionaries and Christians suffer a great deal for the name of Jesus. This includes a number of my students. I have a student from Sudan, Sudan, not South Sudan, Sudan, and he's from Khartoum, and he's writing his dissertation about the challenges of discipleship at home. The government, um, well actually right now, an overwhelming number of them are refugees either in South Sudan, Uganda, or Kenya. The government allows the churches to exist, but much like Paul, there's surveillance and following and questioning and raids. And yet the church is growing, yet he perseveres. Several years ago, I had a student from Rwanda and I went to supervise him at his home parish. And when I got there, he was rather annoyed because they had just found a mass grave on the church property and the government was not cooperating with them in identifying bodies. Now this is quite a while after the genocide. So we're walking up to the church, Nathan is narrating this story and I hear the singing from the church. There are several hundred youth gathered for a camp and they're singing and worshiping. Oh, by the way, Rev, you're preaching, next. So I'm thinking of a sermon, processing what Nathan has told me and the juxtaposition of life and death in the same church compound. They don't teach you how to handle that in seminary, by the way. Just FYI. Since Paul had persecuted the Christians, he knew that there was a cost in carrying out the mission that the Lord had given him. He was told this clearly in Acts 9:16, when Jesus told Ananias to tell Saul how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. My students know that for most of them, this will also be true. There is, generally speaking, not very much money in serving the Lord in Uganda. If you get the cushy assignment at the cathedral, you might be okay, but the diocese only has one cathedral. Only so many priests can serve there. Yet they come because they have been called. I have one student, Stella, who told me she is hoping that she will not be posted in the cathedral. She does not want that cushy job with guaranteed income. Why? Because she wants to be in the village. She wants to be with her people. She wants to be with the people on the lake who are known to be drunkards and generally disorderly. She wants to be with those who are like the tax collector, the ones who are looked down on, the one that people do not want to associate with, especially not the righteous. Now, Stella is a tiny little thing. I mean, tiny. This girl is tiny and fierce, and she said, oh, I went there to the village and they were disorderly, but when I left, they were in order. <laughs> I'm like, oh, you go, girl. <laughs> Meaning, what? They had turned from their ways. They had accepted Jesus. They were walking in the light. And she wants to go find more. I get to work with these people and I could talk about my students all day. I'm not going to. 
I'm in awe of their love for the Lord, their love for his people, their desire to serve him in challenging circumstances. I'm all in, in awe of their determination and their perseverance. I'm constantly telling them that it's my privilege to be there with them and to be part of their lives for a season, because it is. And you make that possible. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I tell you every year that you are the best sending church a missionary could ask for. And it's true, you really are. And so as I close, I want to thank you again. I just thanked you, but I need to do it again. You have formed me. You have made me who I am. Your ministry continues in Uganda and hopefully even continues through my students because all that you have been poured in me and I am pouring in them. That's the message, that's the method in the Bible, isn't it? The biblical message. What Paul poured into Timothy, he poured into others. What you have poured into me, I am pouring out to others. And I pray that that's what we continue to do as a church as we love and serve the Lord. Amen.